you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning as we finish out our series in the book of Nehemiah for the last 12 weeks. We have looked at the idea of kingdom work, the kingdom work of building a wall and then also reforming a people who had fallen away from God. And so as we uh, left off last week, we were um, looking at chapter 10. A lot happens between uh, 11 and 12. A lot, of, a lot of names are given. A lot of things happen. There's a dedication of the wall. And then here in 13, we kind of have the pickup from chapter 10. So 10 leaves and then we come right back in at chapter 13 as we look at confronting sin, confronting sin. So Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39, we left off with this. We will not neglect the house of our God. The people made a covenant with God. They had re-covenanted their vows. They were, they were going before the Lord. They were signing their name on the, on the paper and they were saying, listen, we're going to commit to these areas. We're not going to fall back into sin like we once did, like our nation did. We're going to commit to sexual purity. We're going to be a people who are pure when it comes to our relationships. We're going to be a people of Sabbath priority. We're going to make sure that we keep the Sabbath. We're not going to, we're not going to start doing things on the, on the Sabbath day anymore. And we're going to be a people who have sacrificial provision. We're going to make sure that we give our tithes and our offerings. We're going to make sure that we have enough there to continue the work of the house of God. And so as we move into 13, we've had a little bit of a time that has gone by. Nehemiah has actually gone back to Persia. He's gone back as he promised King Artaxerxes he would. He goes back and then some time goes by and he says, all right, let me go and check on the people and see how they're doing after making this covenant. Well, as you and I both know, sometimes we make promises to God that we just simply can't keep. Am I right? Oh, God, I promise this time I'm not going to do that again. Well, this is the people of God here in Nehemiah chapter 13. They have all but backsliding in every area of reform. Backsliding. It seems to be one of those Christianese terms. Am I right? It's one of those things we say, oh, you know, as we're sharing prayer requests, they're, they're backsliding, right? They're backsliding. Or, oh, you know, I hear they're backsliding, right? These are the things that we say. But backsliding, as we look at it in a Christian context, implies a movement away from Christ rather than towards him. It, it can be major. It could be minor. There's a backsliding of someone who's simply going the wrong way spiritually, they're regressing rather than progressing. The backslider at one time may have demonstrated a commitment to Christ or maintained a certain standard of moral achievement and behavior, but since then they've begun, they've begun to fall back into their old ways. It's backsliding. Hosea 14.4 says, I will hear their, heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Apostasy, really, the definition is a falling away of faith. When someone falls away from the faith, we must ask ourselves, is this temporary or is this final? As we see, there's a difference between possessing faith and professing faith. There are many who profess faith in Jesus, and yet as time goes on, you see that the seeds that were sown into their life really produced no fruit whatsoever. In 1 John 2.19, and they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they were not of us. Backsliding. As Charles Spurgeon says, backsliding is among God's people is very common. 
Not common, perhaps, in its highest degree. God forbid it should be. But in its earlier forms, from its commencement in backsliding of thought and heart onto backsliding and act, I fear the disease is so rife among the people of God that there is scarcely one of us who has not at some time or other suffered from it. And I fear that the most of us might confess it if we judge our own hearts rightly, that in some measure we're backsliding even now. The proper condition of a child of God is walking in light as Christ is in the light. And so having fellowship with Jesus, our right condition and our only safe standing is to abide in him and to have his words and himself abiding in us. But too often we follow afar off. We are living in very limited and remote fellowship with our Redeemer, Charles Spurgeon. The kingdom work of confronting sin. The kingdom work of confronting sin, because if we look at the life of the Israelites here in Nehemiah, and we look at our own lives, we know that there's a tendency to fall away, to make promises to God. Oh, I promise I'll never do this again. And then as time goes on, we begin to compromise. We begin to fall away. We begin to backslide. So let me pray for us as we jump into one point this morning. I have one point. That's it. Just one point. Well, there's seven subpoints, but just one point this morning. So let's pray. Gracious Father, as we look at your word, as we look at the book of Nehemiah, as we have studied it, as we see that you're a covenant-keeping God who is faithful when we are a faithless people, we ask that we would be convicted of sin that we allow to live in our lives, that you would by your word, penetrate us deeply to the way we can no longer walk away from you and backslide away from you, pull away from you. Draw us closer to you today by your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect life that we can't live, that died on the cross, forgiving us of our sins and giving us justification because we are hopeless and helpless without him. Today, mold us into your people by your spirit and by your word. Amen. Number one, confronting sin. We confront sin by clearly understanding God's word. It's really hard to confront sin if you don't know what God's word says. Let's begin here in the first three verses of Nehemiah 13. Follow along with me if you can. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the beginning, in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite, or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Let's stop right there. We confront sin in accordance with Scripture. However, we live in a world that seems to be confused about the issue of sin, don't we? Our sinful worldview seeks to determine what is sin by emotions, by desires, or what we deem justifiable by our endeavor to be accepting of others and their lifestyles and their choices. You can't really confront sin if you don't know what God's Word says. But God's Word is clear that there is sins, and God hates sin. He's a holy God. He can't look upon sin. Proverbs 6 16 through 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, even seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. 
as we look at this list of things that God hates, we see that there are clearly things that go against God. He hates things like haughty eyes, pride. He hates lying tongues. He hates it when hands shed innocent blood, when hearts devise wicked plans. That's not even in the action step. That's in the heart step. Feet that make haste, that run towards evil, that are always looking to get involved in things that go against the will of God. A false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord, someone who is always involved in slander and gossip and who just continually messes with the unity of the body of Christ. These are sins. These are things that God's word clearly says go against his will. Let's go to New Testament, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a list. You get into the New Testament and there's a list and there's some things on this list that, that the world is trying to justify and call not sin. Am I right? Well, when we don't have a clear definition of what sin is, we begin to find ourselves backsliding away from the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is a list. God's word is clear. Sin is sin, according to God's word. Sin is any disobedience to the law of God, any rebellion against God's word. The people here in Nehemiah, they've, they've read the law of God and they are now confronted with the fact that they've been disobedient to the law. They've been living in disobedience. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis that Adam and Eve rebelled against God's word. They gave, that he gave them a covenant of works. If you will not eat of this tree, and yet they rebelled against that. And it manifests itself. Any manifestation of idolatry, selfishness, unfruitfulness, and unbelief that doesn't glorify God. Sin will manifest itself in your life in all different forms, in all different fashions. Sin is not just what we do, it's who we are. Sin is not just out there and we're trying not to catch it like a disease. Sin is in here and I've got news for you. It is seeking a way out in your life and it's gonna find whatever manifestation it can based on what you have allowed in your life. God's word is clear. Sin pollutes us. Sin enslaves us. It separates us from a holy God. We are in desperate need of a savior. Nehemiah 13.1. Now on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. We see this is written in Deuteronomy chapter 23, where it repeats these exact same words. It says, even to the 10th generation, none of them shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. It's as if God's word knows that it's going to be true, not only for this generation, but for every generation. And yet we have a generation that's trying to redefine God's word. As if God didn't know what he was saying when he said it back then. God declared that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of Israel because of the way those nations treated the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness. God's word's clear. You may think, well, it's not very loving. 
that's not fair. Well, well, surely it, it was only just for that generation. I mean, you can't be holding these people accountable for what their ancestors did, right? Well, shouldn't we be more loving and accepting than that? And we begin to question God's word when God's word's clear. When people are involved in deciding what is right and wrong, we forget often that what we call just is skewed by our sin. But the Bible is clear. The reason he didn't want Israel accepting these foreigners into the midst was that they would corrupt Israel from following the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. They were enemies of God. God's word is incorruptibly true from generation to generation, and it doesn't need to be reinterpreted to accommodate what modern culture deems appropriate, fair, or loving. It's God's word. If you or someone you know is professing a belief in Jesus Christ but have backslidden away from God's word to justify what the Bible calls sin, it is wrong and it is an improper interpretation and use of Scripture and it needs to be called out for what it is. It's sin. So we confront sin. Number two, we confront sin by cleaning house. Starting to get good in the narrative here. Let's follow along verses four through nine. Now before this... Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was, in Jerusalem, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders that they cleanse the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, let's stop right there. Now, you get the picture, right? Nehemiah comes back. He's going to check on the people of Israel. Let's see how they're doing with their covenant promise. And then there's Tobiah living in the temple. He's living there. They prepared for him a room in the temple. Now, we've just read that no Moabite or Ammonite is allowed in, in the people with the people, but this one is actually living in the temple. And so when Nehemiah gets back, it's like, a, it's like a breakup. He comes in and he sees all this stuff and he says no, and he starts chunking it out on the lawn, right? I, I just have this picture of this girlfriend that says, get your stuff and get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. That's just kind of what, how I read it. So not only were the Jews marrying the Ammonites and the Moabites, but now an Ammonite is living in the Jewish temple why? Well, Tobiah the Ammonite had been given a room because he is now related. He's married himself in. And so now there's this relational bond that is dictating what they are doing. Let me tell you, our good reasoning and our relational bonds do not trump the word of God. Man, but don't we make excuses for those things? Oswald Chambers once wrote this, Today the world has taken so many things out of the church and the church has taken so many things out of the world that it is difficult to know where you are. 
Vance Habner, today the world has so infiltrated the church that we are more beset by traitors within than by foes without. Satan is not fighting churches. He's joining them. Evil and sin do not go away when you ask nicely. Nehemiah chapter 2, we find out who Tobiah is. But when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They're, they're enemies of God's people. Nehemiah 2.19, when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant of Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So they openly began to mock them and jeer at them. And Nehemiah 4.3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside himself and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Burn, right? That was, the, that was the burn. He's been an enemy from the very beginning. And when Nehemiah shows up, he sees not only them breaking God's law, but he sees the enemy of God now living in the temple. They prepared for him a room. Nehemiah 13, 8, and I was angry. When's the last time you were angry that sin is residing in your home? Angry. How did this get in here? How would anyone allow this? And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And everyone who has a temper in here is like, yeah, that is awesome. I've got biblical reason for throwing people's stuff out on the lawn. It just means that every now and then, we need some righteous anger towards sin. Every now and then, the gap between where God wants us to be and the way that things are should make us so angry that we start getting rid of things that shouldn't be in our life. We should start throwing things out of our lives that make sin live comfortably. We see that Jesus also had this same type of righteous anger. He's the greater Nehemiah who shows up to the temple and he starts flipping tables in Mark chapter 11, 15 through 17. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This area that was dedicated to the Gentiles so that they could come and they could worship God was now filled with all kinds of sin. And it was disrupting the worship. And so Jesus, when he sees this, he's so angry that they would, they would rob people not only physically robbing them by being money changers, but rob them of the opportunity to worship God that he's getting the things out of there. These things can't be here. Church, we should be so angry when there are things in our lives that should not be there. We start cleaning house and confronting sin. This begins with public repentance and moves towards personal accountability. Number three, we confront sin by calling out complacency and neglect, verses 10 through 14. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did not work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations, and all Judah 
brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistants Hanai and the son, the son of Zakur, son of Mathaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Let's stop right there. He says in verse 11, so I confronted, I confronted the officials. Why is the house of God forsaken? The covenant people in chapter 10 had failed to keep their promises of tithing. And so all the people who worked in the temple had now retreated back into the field to work so they could eat. And so everything is left desolate. It's not functioning. The house of God had been forsaken, left totally unattended. And now he comes and he confronts them to their face and brings a little bit of accountability to their, their lack of operating, their complacency and their neglect. It reminds me of King David. You might be familiar with this story. David in 2 Samuel 11 says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he laid with her. Oh, neglect. Neglect and complacency. They get, they get us in all kinds of problems. When there's no accountability, we fail to fulfill our responsibilities. When there's no accountability, we will fail to fulfill our responsibilities. Man, I'm going to talk to you for just a second. Man, your downtime is a dangerous time for you spiritually. Your idle hands, as some would say, could be the devil's workshop. If you consistently have areas of your life that go unchecked with no accountability, you are setting yourself up for failure and the opportunity to backslide into sin. As time went on, 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 9, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, he had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up. He grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and he laid in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was un willing to take one of his own flock of the herd and prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said, Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And, I shall and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are that man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? This is a good question of accountability. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in his sight? Accountability in the body of Christ is a biblical expression of love and commitment both to God and one another. This is why it's so important to be involved in relationships in the local church so that people can hold us accountable so that we will not fall away of our responsibility. Galatians 1, 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with gentleness. 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. James 5, 19 through 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by an evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So before we confront anyone in sin, we need to first check the flesh to make sure that our motives are pure before God. We need to make sure that we're doing it out of a righteous anger, not a personal anger. We need to check our motives. And secondly, we need to check the scriptures to make sure that we are biblically accurate and not simply culturally offended. Because there's a lot of times where we will put what we're offended onto someone and call it sin. So we need to go to the scriptures, know what scripture says. Number four, we confront sin by controlling what we allow in our lives. We confront sin by controlling what we allow in our lives. Let's read 15 through 22. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when, I, when they sold food. Tyrants also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And he doesn't mean like pray for him. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
Remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I want you to notice two things real quick. It wasn't what they were doing that made it sin. It was when they were doing it. There are certain things that you can look at and say, well, that thing's not a sin, but if you're doing it out of accordance with God's word, it is a sin. Number two, it wasn't enough to say that they would keep the Sabbath. They needed safeguards in place to assure that they would keep the Sabbath. So he goes and he shuts the doors and he's not gonna let them in because the people have already broken their covenant in chapter 10, verses 31. Because right here they say, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We're, we're not gonna do it. We've made a covenant. Well, evidently their word wasn't strong enough, so now they're gonna have to put safeguards up. Nehemiah knows this. And he knows that they need these safeguards because it is a pattern of sin in their life. Verses, verse 18 of chapter 13. Did, God your, did, God, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah points out a pattern of sin. Let me ask you, do you know the patterns of sin in your life? If you know the patterns of sin in your life, if you know that these are easy areas for me to, to fall prey to, why would you not put up safeguards? Not that the safeguards are going to make you any holier. It's that you are going to do whatever I can to confront sin, to make sure that it doesn't make it past this breaching wall in my life. Because if it gets past this area, I know my tendencies. I know from my past that I'm more likely to fall back into sin, to backslide. Nehemiah 19, 13, 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. As soon as it began to get dark. Listen, as soon as you feel the darkness of sin and temptation coming into your life, shut the door. Don't leave the door open for compromise. Matthew 6, 22 through 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Let me ask you, what do you allow, what do you allow to remain open for you to look at throughout the week? Psalm 119, 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. And give me life in your ways. We need the Lord's help to turn our eyes away from the things of this world, away from darkness, away from sin, and to focus on his light. Five, we confront sin by caring for the next generation. Verses 23 through 25. In those days, I, days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I continued, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Some of us need to memorize that verse. And I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. They could not speak the language of Judah. Let's stop right there. A whole generation grew up and they could not speak the language of Judah, meaning they couldn't read scripture. They were 
biblically illiterate. Is that a big deal? I mean, half the children spoke a language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah. They don't know the truth. They're biblically illiterate. Today, we have a generation that is being raised scripturally and biblically illiterate. They understand the language of culture more than they understand the language of Christian doctrine. Today's teens are less Christian and more confused about moral and spiritual truth than ever. Am I right? According to radical research and Dr. Rainier's church research, there's a decline in faith by generations here in the United States. 65% of those who are 65 years old and older in our nation have trusted Christ alone for salvation, 65%. The next group down, 35% of those 46 to 64 years old. You see how it goes, 15% of those 34 to 45 years old. And when we get down to our teenagers, to our 33-year-olds, only 4% have trusted Christ alone for their salvation. You think it's a big deal that we're raising up a generation that's biblically illiterate? They know more about culture than they knew about Christ. And we're feeding them. We're, we're keeping the doors open and we're not closing the doors on things that come into our home that are, that are damaging our kids. We need to start confronting sin when it enters our houses. How can we allow these things to go on? As Adolf Hitler said, I, I, I got some comments for quoting Adolf Hitler, so I'm gonna do it again. He alone who owns the youth gains the future. Let me tell you, Satan is trying to gain the future. It reminds me of Joshua and Judges. I don't have time to get into all of it, but a whole generation grew up and did not even know the Lord. So I confronted them. I cursed them. And I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. Man, some people just need a biblical whipping. Let me just say whipping. Let me not put the other word in there. Am I right? We need to grab each other. What are you doing? Do you not see how dangerous it is when your child grows up not knowing Scripture? Some Christian parents have allowed culture and idols to be stones of remembrance in their child's lives more than the continual devotion and faithful obedience to Christ. If parents worship idols, if parents sacrifice for idols, so will their children. Six, we confront sin by combating spiritual adultery. Verses 26 and 27, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all the great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Solomon was the greatest king, the wisest man. It says in 1 Kings 3, 9 through 12, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. 
for who is able to govern this, your great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So even the smartest and wisest man fell because of relationships. First Kings 11.4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David, his father. So here's what we learn. It doesn't matter who you are. The fact is our hearts for God can be compromised by our ungodly human relationships. It doesn't matter who you are. Ungodly human relationships can pull your heart away from God. I don't have time to get through all of these verses. Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea, Matthew 9.13 shows that the people of God had reverted back to just simply going through the motions. But God longed for their hearts. Seven, let's end with this one. We confront sin by continually looking to Christ's finished work on the cross and his imminent return. 28 through 31. And one of the sons of Jehoadiah, the son of Elishab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleaned them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. We have a covenant-keeping, faithful God, even when we are a faithless people, even when we backslide. As Romans 7, 18 through 25 reads, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's capacity to save us through Christ, putting on flesh, is greater than our capacity to sin in the flesh. This is the hope we have this Easter Nehemiah gives us an interesting connection that Nehemiah went away and then he returned to see how the people of God were doing. Jesus, 
After his death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended into heaven and we are awaiting his return. What will he return to? Will he return to a people who are faithful, who are relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Or will he return to a people who have wandered, redefined sin in their own minds? Maybe he will find us as people of faith.